0: Hello and welcome to this very first episode of the Physiology of Endurance Running podcast. I'm your host, Dan Nash, PhD researcher in exercise physiology and a 2.15 marathon runner. So welcome everybody. Um, I expect if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have a bit of an idea of who I am already. But yeah, just to introduce myself properly, my name's Dan. Um, I'm doing a, a PhD Uh, Cardiff Met University in exercise exercise physiology um, where my research area is the cytokine response to endurance training. Um, Now as part of this PhD um, I also provide sports science support for uh, Welsh Athletics and Welsh Triathlon uh, and I deliver their sports science support for them so I do exercise testing Uh, and it helps support their elite athletes and I'm also a a runner in my own right and I've competed over basically all the distances I've worked my way through, Um, I've done track races, raced as as, as, as low down as 800 meters, not very well but I have done Um, but probably better at the the longer distances so as I said I've done a a 2.15 marathon, Um, I've run 29.23 for 10k um, but I'm also the British record for for 50 holder for 50 K on the road, uh, two hours and, uh, 49 minutes. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's me, um, as a bit of an introduction. Um, but I guess like I was also going to sort of mention why I thought I'd start this podcast. And I mean, it started really with, um, you'll probably remember that back in, uh, 2020 with, uh, with COVID, there was, a. A uh, a an avalanche of of content being put out there so you uh, YouTube videos and webinars, um and as part of my role with Welsh Athletics they asked me to put a out a couple of webinars, um on the physiology of running, um and you can find them on the Welsh Athletics YouTube channel, um there's 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 three episodes um the physiology of endurance running part one and part two, uh, as well as uh, the Physiology of the Masters Athlete, where I talked about uh, how our physiology changes with ageing and how we maybe need to adjust our training um, to, to, to take into account these changes. Um, anyway, they, they seem to prove uh, really popular. And they've had a few thousand views on, um, on YouTube between them. Uh, and it's something that I really enjoyed as well. Uh, and so ever since, I've thought about actually how uh how can I go about sharing more of the this, this um this sports science content? And uh, I think there's a there's a real interest for it at the moment as well. I think people are becoming increasingly interested in sports science uh and performance sport in general. Um but at the same time there's also a lot of BS out there and a lot of overselling, I think, of of sports science research. I and mean, there's certainly uh every time I look on the internet, there's more and more products being being sold um, to the claim, they make lots of claims, lots of very big claims. But actually, if you go back to the research, uh, they're often overstated, or actually, there really isn't the evidence base to, 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 to support what they're saying at all. Um, so, I think that's sort of why I wanted to start this podcast, Abe's. I think it's people are really interested in it, but also to counteract some of the, the, the misnomers that are out there and to, to hopefully ground ourselves and actually the evidence base um and what we what we do know um but also mention what we don't know there's plenty in sport and sport performance but actually we can't really explain so far in in sport science and it's it's still a reasonably new field um and yeah we, de- we definitely don't know all the answers yet so i think it's really important to to state what we don't know and not go into this of uh, this uh, go over to the other side where we're making claims about things but actually we don't we don't necessarily know are true. Um, yeah, so that's why I thought I'd, I'd start this podcast. Um, in terms of structure, I'm going to basically cover one main topic per episode, and um, we'll do a bit of a deep dive about actually what what do we know about that particular topic, um, and then actually break it down into really what I'm really interested in is making um, turning this scientific knowledge into uh, how how does that inform applied practice, or actually, how can we take that 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 that, that, that thing that we know and use it to make us run faster? Um, and yeah, so one one main topic per episode, um, and I also want to really signpost you back to the original research as well as point you towards researchers who are really like, cutting edge in their their area so actually who are the people to actually are doing this cutting edge research and uh really are the experts in their field um yeah in terms of frequency of the of a podcast uh how many episodes will be coming out each week month etc that's to be determined i'm pretty busy um juggling lots of lots of plates and i've got a phd to finish as well trying to fit in my own running um and we had a, we had a kid six months ago who takes up a bit of our time too. Uh, so yeah, we'll just see how it goes. We'll keep it pretty informal, but I'll try and get them out as frequently as I can. So, first topic of this very first first uh, first episode, this first po- of this of this podcast, and I've chosen to uh, talk about marathon fueling. And actually, specifically, actually, what fuel should we take on during a marathon? How can we optimise that to, uh, to help our marathon performance? Um, There's a few reasons why I've chosen this as our first topic. Um, uh, firstly, marathon season is coming up. London Marathon is, is just around the corner, really. And there will also be plenty of people, I'm sure, travelling out to Europe to, to take part in marathons out there. Um, so very relevant for a lot of people. Uh, but importantly there's still time to to modify your nutrition strategies and practices um, before then so actually uh yeah we're uh i'm not dropping this on you a week before london where actually you've run out of time to make any changes and practice things in training so hopefully this can you can use some of this uh information that i share to really um uh, help your marathon performance um and then Another reason why I've chosen to tackle marathon fueling this first episode is that actually it's one of the areas where sports science, I think, really has made a difference. Um, and I think a lot of the times, actually, the the improvements we see in, in world records uh, and, and, and changes in personal best performances, as well as shoe technology... Uh it's I think it's over the, the last, you know, if we're talking decades, it's it's down to training practice, I think. And most of the time that actually tends to be worked out by coaches and athletes just through trial and error. But I think sports nutrition actually is somewhere where um research really has affected the practices of elite athletes. Um but at the same time I still don't think it's poorly understood, maybe by even by some really high level athletes to be honest. I've seen I've seen uh nutrition practice by even athletes of the Commonwealth Games. I was there supporting um uh, athletes at the marathon. I was on one of the drink stations and actually there's still room for improvement in some of these athletes who are, you know, competing for their country. So I think e although we I think the scientific community has got quite a strong consensus of what we think and what we know to be optimal, I don't think it always gets translated into uh into practice and so uh i think it's a a, a good area to to cover and actually has the potential to to really make a difference to marathon times now i I think you could ask the question how much difference does it make and i tried to do a bit of reading on this but actually it was was hard to get it's it's hard to get a clear cut um okay this is how taking on energy drinks etc is going to improve your marathon time by x percent it's hard to get a number on that I did find a review article um, which compared uh, got together five studies but looked at taking on carbohydrates or a placebo, so uh, a, a basically a, a sweetened uh, energy drink which didn't actually have any carbohydrates in it. And they found um, uh, a four to ten percent improvement um, in in uh, time trial performance um, in runners. Now in in minutes, if we take a three-hour marathon runner that'd be like four percent would equate to seven minute improvement in marathon performance a 10 percent would be 18 minutes improvement in marathon performance now intuitively i don't think you're gaining 18 minutes on marathon performance taking uh, energy um carbohydrates on during a race compared to taking on water or placebo um I would say maybe it's close to seven minutes. And it's, it's probably going to be some really individual variation depending on how fast you're running, the type of athlete you are, um, how well you conditioned you are for the event. But intuitively, I, I do think that you know about five to 10 minute difference, um, depending on the athlete um, and compa- like taking on any, uh, a, a, a really optimized nutrition strategy compared to taking on nothing I think that's probably like fair. I think it's probably like about ballpark right. So it really has got the ability to make a big difference to marathon times. Um, and especially actually if you think about how much training it would take to uh, achieve similar improvements in marathon time. Uh, so I definitely think that it's a, it's a place where you can make some easy wins, really, um, with just a bit of practice um, and, um, and some knowledge um so that's why i chose this topic today um and hopefully you're going to find this interesting now before we get into like the the real details i think we need a bit of background on exercise metabolism or actually what what how do we how do we um burn fuels to produce the energy we need uh, for muscle contraction to make us run basically now we're not going to go too too deep. We don't need to be, um, yeah, have the experts in biochemistry. But uh, I think having having a bit of understanding um, really helps. And you'll probably know a lot of this already. But really, um, there are two main fuels that we use when we exercise: um, carbohydrates and fats. Now, you know, there can be some protein uh we can some protein being used as a uh, metabolizer as a fuel source but this is really only happens when we're we we're, um, uh, we really have got a lot of muscle breakdown and we've really exhausted our fuel source stores and actually in practical terms uh, during a marathon we're basically going to be relying on a mixture of carbohydrates and fats um now, Fat has got the advantage um, of the fact that uh, we have almost an infinite supply of fat. Nobody is going to run out of fat stores when they're exercising. Even um, some of these borderline underweight elite marathon runners who have probably got body fat percentages of 5 to 6% and are arguably too low sometimes. Even those athletes have got plenty enough fat to run multiple marathons back to back to back. If they had to, so that's a great advantage for fat. Um, and fat is stored in your in our adipose tissue, in our fat tissue. Um, you know that's more about that superficial fat we can think of, but also there's actually fat stores within the muscle fibers themselves. And these are um, these these fat stores are obviously because they're at the site where they're needed for, for metabolism and energy breakdown. These are these are these are really useful stores of of fat. Um, now, the, the the cons of fat of is that uh it's it's slow to break down. Um so we can't break it down super, super quickly, which means that when we want to run at faster intensities, fat no longer becomes um the the fuel source of choice. Um because it just we just can't break it down quick enough to produce energy quick enough of the, the rate of energy turnover we need to, to run at higher intensities. Um, So that's one um, downside to fat. And another is it's less economical. And by that, I mean that actually to produce the same amount of energy um, as we'd get from breaking out carbohydrate, um, we need to breathe in more oxygen. So, for example, if I was running um, a six minute mile pace, uh, I would need to take on breathing more oxygen if I was burning just fat as a fuel source compared to if I was burning just carbohydrates as a fuel source. And this becomes an issue, especially as you get towards higher intensities, because it's gonna mean that instead of working at, for example, 70% of our VO2 max, if we were burning all carbohydrates, we now might be at 75% if we're burning fats. And that's gonna mean that actually, we're we're working at a higher intensity, it's gonna feel harder, um, and it's going to be not as sustainable for as long um, so that 's sort of like why you know that's a great a great source of energy like we've got an almost infinite supply, but less economical and we can't break them down as quickly, so they're not as good for more high intensity running now maybe it doesn't matter if you're a bit less economical if you are working at low intensities um, but the far the faster you go. Difference between you know what the difference between seventy and seventy five percent of VO two max isn't that much, but actually if we're talking about the difference between uh, eighty five and ninety percent of VO two max, now that's going to be quite meaningful. Um, that's going to feel a lot harder, uh, and it's going to have a again you're not going to be able to sustain that intensity for nearly as long. So that's where actually takes us to our second fuel choice, which is carbohydrates. Now carbohydrates are stored. Um, as glycogen within our muscle fibers themselves but also within the liver um so we can use that as a fuel source but we can also burn uh, blood, uh, blood glucose so the glucose that's in our bloods we can take that out of the our muscle fibers are really good at snatching glucose out of that blood especially during exercise when they there's a real need for for glucose muscles are really good at pulling that that glucose out of the bloods um, and uh, and using it as a fuel source. So that's that's where we can get our carbohydrates from, glycogen, which is how where our, where we we store um, our, our carbohydrates um, in the body. So in the liver, which can then be broken down. In the, the carbohydrate the glycogen in the liver can be can be broken down and actually be used to maintain that blood glucose levels um, at appropriate levels. Um, as well as that glycogen that we've got in our muscles, which is going to stay in our muscles and be broken down in our muscles because that's actually where it's needed. Um, so as I've alluded to already, burning either blood glucose or glycogen um, is more economical. We don't need as much oxygen um, to, burn, uh, the same, to create the same amount of, of, of energy um, uh, from carbohydrate stores as we do when we're, we're using fat stores. So that's a big tick, Um, but the cons, which most people know, is that actually our 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 glycogen stores are limited. Um, So we only have a certain amount of of glycogen that we can store within our muscle fibres and in our liver, Um, and it's about two thousand calories. Give or take, depending on the size of the athlete, how much muscle mass you have, what uh, diet what diet you take on regularly. But let's say, for example, that it's about 2000 calories, um, which unfortunately isn't quite enough to get us all the way to the end of a marathon. Um, so an economical person. Someone who's. Quite economical we'll burn about 100 calories a mile so it's going to take them about 2600 calories to run the 26.2 miles of a marathon now if we've only got 2000 calories roughly worth of glycogen stores then that's not quite enough to get us to the finish line Uh, so that means that we're going to have to use a mix of carbohydrates and fats to get us to the end of a marathon Before exhaustion. Um, So, what happens if we do deplete our carbohydrate stores too quickly? Um, So, our our glycogen stores are nearly empty, and our blood glucose is actually maybe we can't maintain that blood glucose levels um, sufficiently because actually we've also depleted that liver glycogen. Well, then what happens is we switch to fats, and that is going to mean that we are now less economical. And we also can't maintain those, those same intensities um, that we did at the start. So maybe at the start of a marathon, we could maintain um, 85% of our VO2 max. But actually, we've depleted our glycogen stores. We can no longer sustain those high intensities. And actually, now we're having to run at 70% of VO2 max. And that's as hard as we can go. And actually, you can see this really clearly, actually, in the heart rate traces of um, people who have paced a marathon well. Compared to ones who have really hit the wall and fallen off a cliff and you'll see that actually in those ones in those people those those Runners where they've paced the marathon really well and spread the effort evenly over the course of a marathon um, Their heart rate is just gonna slowly drift all the way up until they hit about max at the end of a marathon Maybe not quite max but getting pretty close to max whereas in someone who's hit the wall completely Heart rate is going to rise much more quickly, and it's going to get to quite a high level. Probably not max about somewhere. Probably depending on how well you pace it. Let's say you start to really fade after 18 miles, so it's going to keep climbing all the way up to 18 miles. Uh, but then it's actually going to fall because we they can't maintain that exercise intensity high enough because they've really depleted their glycogen stores. And actually, for uh, by the for the last 10k of a marathon. Their heart rate won't be necessarily as high as the um, uh, as it was at the start, and actually, it won't be. Although a heart rate is going to be much higher than you'd expect for the pace that they're running at, because they're, they're now they're less economical, they need more oxygen um, and need to pump their heart harder to, uh, to distribute that oxygen um, to the muscles. Uh, so they're not their heart rate is higher than you'd expect for the pace if they were fresh. It's actually not as high as um, somewhat uh, as it was at the start of the race uh, and if you compare like the average heart rate between that person who paced it well compared to the person who's um, hit the wall and, and um, really struggled over the last 10k then actually the one who paced it well is going to have a higher average heart rate for the whole marathon um so that's a nice way that you can just demonstrate it just by using some some simple heart rate data um, and obviously, the other thing that happens if you deplete your gly- carbohydrate stores too quickly is that you're going to be very fatigued. Um, and part of that is that you're going to get a, um, a a feedback signal from the muscles to the brain to say that I'm fatigued. But also, if if blood glucose starts to fall, then the brain its preferential fuel type is glucose, and it's far super far works far better burning glucose than it does. Um, than fat and so actually the brain is going to start is going to register that blood glucose is falling and it's going to translate into actually fatigue um, even before glycogen levels become completely exhausted so hopefully then it's pretty clear that the goal um, is to ensure that we're burning as much carbohydrate as we can um with the, the, the aim that actually we deplete carbohydrate as we cross the finish line. Now, obviously, it's not a, even if you're completely, you know, you, you've hit the wall, your carbohydrate, your glycogen stores aren't completely empty. There'll be a little bit left in the tank um, because uh, it's impossible, basically, to completely run with 100% dry. Your brain is very good at protecting itself and will make you fat- fatigue before you get to that point. Um, but, we want to basically hit the wall, if you like, at or <laughs> just after the finish line so that we uh, can burn as much carbohydrate uh, as we can because that's going to mean that we can run at higher intensities and we're going to be more economical. Um, now, there's a few ways that we can we can help do this. First is pacing right, because the intensity is the main thing that dictates whether we use uh, carbohydrates or fats as a fuel, as a fuel source. Um, if we're running at low intensities we're going to use more fat now as we graduate towards higher intensities it becomes almost exclusively carbohydrates so everyone knows that pacing in a marathon is really really important Um, and and the main reason why for this is because actually we can start to deplete our glycogen stores too quickly if we're running at those high intensities early on higher intensities than actually we can sustain so that's the first thing is getting that, that pacing balance right and actually Um, Making sure that we're in a place where we are going to be mostly using carbohydrates as a fuel source, but actually we need enough to be metabolizing enough fat so that actually we can eke out that carbohydrate use over the course of the 26.2 miles, 42.2 kilometers. So that's one key thing is pacing. The second thing we can do, which is the topic of this episode, is take on carbohydrates during the race so obviously we want to make sure that our carb- our glycogen levels are topped up before the race even begins so that actually in a couple of days beforehand we we're eating a high carbohydrate diet and that actually we've had a carbohydrate rich breakfast in the morning um, a few hours before to make sure we've had time to uh, absorb that carbohydrate digest it and then store it as muscle glycogen and liver glycogen um, but we can also take on carbohydrates during race. Um, And that's going to help us uh, in a couple of ways. Firstly, it's going to keep that blood glucose really high. And as I said earlier, the muscles are great at pulling glucose out of the blood um, and burning it as a fuel, Um, especially when we exercise. Actually, as we exercise, the muscles are really clever and they uh, send uh, glucose transporters or glucose channels to the outside of the muscle fibers where there's a muscle blood interface and that means that the 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 wall of the muscle fiber becomes even more porous to glucose and so it's really good at sucking that glucose out of the blood and into the muscle where it can be used by the mitochondria to 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 um to to produce energy um so that's one one thing so that's going to mean that we um we're going to be more economical because we're burning more carbohydrates and, re- and relying less on fat. um but that's also going to mean that it reduces our rate of glycogen breakdown because if we're getting our gly- our, our glucose um from the blood rather than having to break down glycogen um during the first you know during the, the opening half half marathon um you know 20 miles, then that's going to mean that we can eke out our glycogen to last us over the whole 26.2 miles. Um, and again, as I said, that's going to mean that we can run at higher intensities and be more economical. Now, hopefully, I've convinced you then that, yep, yeah, carbohydrates, they're the king. That's where we need to go. We basically want to oxidize or break down as much carbohydrate as we can during the marathon with the caveat that we don't deplete our glycogen stores too much before we get to the end. Um, so now we'll move on to actually how much carbohydrate can we take on during a marathon. Uh, and actually, the main limiting factor to how much we can take on, how much carbohydrate we can absorb and use in the muscles, is how good we are at absorbing carbohydrates from the intestines. Um, so it's not how much the muscles can use. The muscles are great at burning fuels. They're really that's how they're designed. We've got lots of mitochondria. Um, we have lots of aerobic enzymes that are great at burning fuels. Our, our our blood is great at distributing it to the muscles really quickly. Um, but what uh, the limiting factor is is how quickly we can get the carbohydrates out of our intestines and into the bloodstream. Um, and for glucose, so it's a simple sugar molecule, glucose, we can take out about 60 grams an hour from our intestine and get it to our muscles and metabolize it as a fuel source. Um, and for a long time, that's what we thought was the, the, the how much the optimal amount that we should take on. But actually, the the, the ceiling, if you like, for how much carbohydrate we could take on during an exercise was about 60 grams an hour hour. Uh, um, and that was what recommendations were for, for many years. But actually, it's since been discovered that um, there are other types of we've known for a long time, that other types of carbohydrate exist. Um, so we've got glucose, but there's also um, other similar similar carbohydrate molecules such as fructose, sucrose, etc., which are very similar. But more importantly, they have different uh, carbohydrate channels absorption in 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 the intestines Um, so similar to muscle where we've got um, carbohydrate transporters and channels that can pull glucose out of the blood and into the muscle fibers the same happens in the gut Um, and we now know that there are different channels depending on the type of carbohydrate um, that uh, is in the intestines so these different channels these transporters there are ones that take up glucose there are, ones are the other channels that will take up different types of carbohydrates, so such, as, such as fructose. And we now know that actually, if we use a mix of, of uh, 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 an energy source that's so got a mix of glucose and another type of carbohydrate, such as fructose, then we can increase the amount of, of a rate of carbohydrate absorption. And in this case, it's about, uh, the ceiling seems to be at about, for runners at least, 90 grams an hour now it's going to depend a little bit about on the individual and we'll talk about why that might be the case a bit later on in the show but that's as a, as a ballpark the recommendations now is trying to get as close as we can to 90 grams an hour of carbohydrate taking on um during exercise if we're using a mixture of fuel types and i commonly um energy drinks energy gels now will have a mixture of either glucose and fructose or multidextrin and fructose because these use different uh, transporters in the intestine to get into the blood. Uh, So what does 90 grams an hour actually translate to in terms of uh, gels, which are what most people probably are using during a marathon, um, certainly in the mass field where you don't have your own drink station. Well, let's take a typical gel It's got about 22 grams of carbohydrates um, in each one, which is what SIS Go um, has. So they're probably one of the most common gels out there, the SIS Go um, brands, which are like their basic gel. They've got 22 grams in. So if you're a three hour marathon runner and you want to take on 90 grams an hour of carbohydrates, you would need 11 of those gels. So that's a really high rate of uh, of gel intake um, and I very much doubt that uh, the typical athlete is taking on eleven gels during a three hour marathon um, which shows you that there's probably room for improvement there now one uh, before I move on I'd like thing I'd like to highlight is actually uh, saying that actually in most most energy drinks most sports gels um, have these days, a mix of either glucose and fructose or multidextrin and fructose, the SIS-GO does not have a mix of fuel types. It is uh, just glucose, or it might just be multidextrin. It's just one fuel type anyway. Uh, So actually, that means that it would be quite difficult and probably uh, you probably have quite a lot of gastric distress, GI symptoms, if you try to take on 90 grams an hour using that particular gel. So I think it's really worth actually looking at the fuels that you are taking on and ensuring that they are a mixture of two different fuel types. And mostly they'll be glucose and fructose, um, which is what the Morton gels are. Um, or in the case, the case of the, um, the higher range um, SIS gels, which are the SIS beta fuel gels, they are uh, multidextrin and fructose. Uh, so really worth checking the type of gels that you're taking on um, or, and drinks that you're taking on during your, your your marathons. And now another caveat is that I said that 90 grams an hour should be the target, but actually there are a few things that you're going to need to do to be able to hit that 90 grams an hour. Um, now we've mentioned one and the first is, which is uh, choose the right fuel type. You want a, a, an energy a drink an energy gel that's got a mixture of either glucose and fructose or probably multidextrin and fructose. Uh, So we've covered that already. Um, But another one that's really important is actually taking on carbohydrates in our diet generally. So if you've got a high carbohydrate diet, then that's going to increase the amount of carbohydrate transporters that we have in our intestines. Now, we also, as well as, and the most, most runners are going to have a high-carbohydrate diet anyway. Most Western um, Western people from the West have a high-carbohydrate diet anyway. But a second factor is taking on carbohydrates whilst we're exercising. And again, that has been shown to increase the amount of uh, carbohydrate transporters that we have in our intestine. Um, so it's, that's one of the reasons why it's really important just to practice with uh, with the our intended nutrition strategy that we're going to use in the marathon, we need to do that in training as well. Um, because not just are we going to um, just get used to the idea of ripping open a gel sachet or taking on liquid on the move, but also it's going to expose our intestine to um, to carbohydrates when it's under some sort of stress, and then it's going to uh, respond to that, adapt to that by increasing the amount of transporters. So the next time. It's going to be better adapted to pulling carbohydrate out of the intestine and into the blood. Now, another factor that's going to affect actually how well we tolerate these fuels is the frequency of which we take them on. Like, so we could there's multiple ways you could take on 90 grams an hour. You could take none every hour you could take on 90 grams of carbohydrates, which would be, you know, you could smash two gel two, two and a half gels. If they've got a high high carbohydrate content, um, so for example, the, the, the SIS base fuel and the Morton gels that I mentioned earlier, they've both got 40 grams of carbohydrate on. So you could do two, two gels of that basically every hour, um, and that would be one way of taking on 90 grams an hour. But actually, it's much better to to increase the frequency. Um, now, most marathons will have energy stations every 5 k elite drinks tables um, for the elite athletes are normally every 5K. But interestingly, one of the strategies that Eliud Kipchoge employed during the breaking two um, attempts was that he was actually given his drink every mile. Um, Now, that means you don't have to take on as much in one go. Um, So you don't have to take on, for example, 250 mil of sports drink. You could take on just 50 mil if you did it every mile. Um, well, those for, you know, those approximate numbers, um, so it means we don't have to take on as much uh, time um, which is going to mean that it's actually more, it's going to be a more evenly distributed, um, even distribution of uh, carbohydrates getting to your intestine. It's going to be more gr- a gradual flow than a shock every, every 18, 20 minutes or so being given just a massive bolus of carbohydrates. um so that's probably going to help with the absorption, but it's also going to mean there's a more continuous stream of glucose being delivered to your muscles as well. So frequency is really important. And that's going to, I guess, the frequency is often going to depend upon actually the practicalities of uh, are you get, giving a bottle every 5k or are you taking your own gels? Um, and actually with the gels, it's also hard to take you know half a gel at a time. Um, so actually you are going to be dictated a little bit with your frequency by the practicalities of your situation and what you've got available to you. But it is something that's worth bearing in mind that higher frequencies are going to be better. Little and often it's gonna be much better than taking on big amounts of carbohydrates at less frequent intervals. So there are some ways that you can improve your tolerance for carbohydrates, but you also need to be aware there are things that can reduce your tolerance for, for taking on energy um energy um whilst you're exercising. Now firstly, like actually just the mode of exercise is important. So we're talking about marathon running here, but actually and we're saying for that it's normally about 90 grams an hour of carbohydrates um, is about the limit of what we can take on. But cyclists, for example, uh, sometimes take on as much as 120 grams per hour vis-a-vis um, the elite cyclists competing at the Tour de France. Um so a mode of exercise is important. Um probably for a number of reasons. Uh, a, you're you're much you're much more stationary on a bike compared to running, just the up and down movement um is gonna give you a bit of an upset tummy and make it harder to absorb fuel. Um but it also uh there's probably gonna be uh another factor is 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 how well your your gut, your intestines are perfused with blood. Because what happens when you exercise is that uh, blood is distributed to where it's most needed. So, obviously, when you're running, your blood, your your need for oxygen in your muscles and in your, in your legs is going to go up uh, several folds compared to when you're resting. And so, the body's really clever. It's going to direct oxygen rich blood towards working muscles. But it also needs to decide that actually, you know, when we're running along, we don't need to focus on in, on uh, digesting food as much. That's not what we, we do. That when we're resting, not when we're exercising. And so it diverts blood away from the intestines and the gut and the stomach, and that's going to mean mean that actually it's more. Our intestines aren't going to be as good at absorbing uh, energy fuel sources, carbohydrates, um, and it's going to find this more difficult. And so we won't be able to do it as efficiently. So actually gut perfusion is really important. Um, And the two factors that are most important for actually how well perfused our gut is, are the intensity of exercise we're we're running at, but also the temperature. Um, Now, intensity, uh, that's gonna have a a big factor for the uh, elite level runners who are running, you know, low two hour marathons. They are running a much higher intensity than the athlete who's taking four hours to run the marathon. And that means actually the elite athletes are gonna find it more difficult to take on uh, carbohydrates during uh, their race compared to the slower people. So in that that in that in that situation, um, the slower you are, you've got you're actually an advantage in terms of being able to take on your fuel um, more effectively. Uh, and actually also highlights what for the elite athlete. They really need to practice in training to make sure that they're really tuned in with how much that they can tolerate at uh, race pace. Um, So, yeah, as I said, the second factor is heat. So actually, the hotter it is, then the more challenging it is to take on carbohydrates during exercise. And that's because our blood is taken, more blood is taken away from the intestines, and it's distributed to the skin to help with cooling. So we can actually, you know, uh, our, our our blood is going to be pretty much core body temperature, 37 degrees, 36 and a half degrees, maybe a bit, a bit higher, maybe when we're exercising, 38, 39, hopefully not too much past 40, otherwise we're going to run into difficulty. Um, but it's going to take this hot blood, take it to the surface of our skin, where it can be released into environment, and that's going to help with cooling. But at the same time, that's going to impact on our ability to take on carbohydrates. So I think the message there is actually if you're running high, at higher intensities, so you're running at faster speeds, then it's going to be more difficult to take on energy during your marathon. Um, but also, actually, if it's a hot day, you may also struggle and you may have to dial back your nutritional strategy and your nutrition plan and take on maybe slightly less than you were planning to if you For example, you've been training for London Marathon in April and you've had lots of lovely training conditions where your long runs have all been at 5 degrees, 10 degrees, uh, nice running temperatures. But actually you get to to April and it's the first hot day of the year and it's 25 degrees. Um, In that case, as well as dialing back on your pace, you may need to dial back on your nutrition strategy and maybe take on slightly less carbohydrates. so that brings us on to actually what fuel types there are many different types of fuel we can take on basically we can have solids bars for example we can have gels or we can have liquids now what should we choose um there which is the best one which which one is best for carbohydrate absorption and it's it's probably pretty intuitive but actually liquids are easier to absorb than gels or solids so it's liquids are the most easy to absorb gels still quite good but actually uh it's not quite as easy to absorb um than than liquids and then solids are more difficult to break down uh and 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 uh and to absorb that carbohydrate in out of the intestines and into the blood Uh, however if you haven't got elite drinks, then it becomes very difficult to take on liquids during, um, during the marathon. Um, so the elites are very lucky in that they get often, as I said earlier, there'll be a drinks table every 5k. Uh, and they can have whatever they want on that table. They can have a bottle, they can have a bottle of gels. Um, now, my recommendation if you're in that situation is to go with the liquids because it's more easy to absorb. But you're also getting fluids as well, which is going to help maintain your hydration status. We don't want to become a little bit of dehydration is fine, but we don't want to become too dehydrated because that's going to thicken the blood. It's going to make it harder to pump blood around the system and deliver oxygen to the muscles. So if, if, if it was me and what I do, if I've got access to elite drinks, liquids all the way. Okay. Uh, now, gels. Are a good option, uh, especially if you're going to have to carry your fuel because uh, you uh, they are much lighter than taking liquids. They're more concentrated. Uh, there's 40 grams per carbohydrate in a, a single gel if you've got the top range ones and that's in 60 ml of fluid. So it's much easier to take that round, um, round the marathon and carry that with you. Uh, than 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 taking a hydration pack for example and weight is a big factor again when it comes to marathon training marathon racing and running performance so for the vast majority of people i think gels are probably the way to go um because you can carry them and you can also practice with the nutrition um that you 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 can use in the race in training as well so you can really dial in what you're going to use um now solids are an option You can have bars, but I think where they can be probably more useful is that people who are running slower marathons because, as I said, solids are harder to break down. You've got to actually physically break down um, the the, the components of a bar into glucose molecules in your stomach and in your intestine. And that's going to take longer and it's going to require better perfusion of your intestines and gut and stomach. Um, Now, if you look at Tour de France riders, they often actually start with solids, where at the start of a race, where it's actually the intensity isn't too high. They transition to gels um, when things are starting to heat up a bit and actually the intensity is rising. And at the end, when actually they can be pretty close to VO2 max or really, at really quite high intensities, that's when they transition to just liquids. Um, so that is an option, potentially, if you're a slower. Um, if you're a slower runner or if maybe actually we're not talking about a marathon anymore we're talking about an ultra event where actually instead of running for three hours maybe you're running for six plus hours now in that case solids might be an option especially at the early part of the race but i think um there's my my preference in terms of actually if you if if you've got access to it will be to go liquids if you can't do liquids take on gels if you can't take gels most of the time, you'll be able to take on gels. But if you couldn't take on gels or you really don't get on them very well, then maybe solids would be an option to try. So I think that covers a few types. Um, I think now it's really just like let's let's sort of talk through a step by step guide of how we would create our own nutrition strategy. A for a for the, for, for the race, but also in the build up to getting to that race. Um as I mentioned earlier, practising is going to be really important in training. A, because we can uh, we can improve our ability to absorb carbohydrates with practice, and um, but also it gives us a really good idea of we can help quantify, actually, and work out our nutritional strategy for race day. And we can get, actually, although I've given you that guideline of, actually, we should aim to shoot for 90 grams an hour, you know you, you might be particularly good at burning carb uh, absorbing carbohydrates and you might be able to take on 100 grams per hour or on the other hand you might be someone who struggles a bit with taking on nutrition and maybe you can only tolerate 70 grams per hour um without getting this dist- uh, gastric distress um and that's worth mentioning now actually that um that uh if if you're, not taking, if you're not able to absorb that carbohydrate that's in your intestines, say you've taken on 120 grams an hour, but actually your body's only capable of absorbing 90 grams, then you're going to have experiences such as being nauseous. You might actually be sick. You're going to have reflux. Um, and that's going to obviously not be ideal. It's not going to be beneficial for your running performance. And so actually, if you're experiencing those symptoms, it probably means that you're not fully absorbing all of that carbohydrate that you're taking on. So I think, as I said, first thing to do is practice it in training, um, and ideally you want to be doing it at stuff which is going to be a reasonably close to the intensity and the duration that you're going to be uh, going to be operating at during the marathon. So, for example, it could be during a marathon marathon pace tempo where you do thirteen miles at marathon pace. Um, but one downside to that is actually you're only taking it on for. Uh, for half the duration that you will be taking on fuel during the actual marathon, so I think my preference would be to do it in a long run, slightly slower than marathon pace. So the intensity is only slightly slower. Uh, but you've got your you're taking on fuel for say two hours, two plus hours of duration because actually it's it's easier, it's much easier to take on carbohydrates for an hour than it is to for doing it for two or three hours. So my recommendations will be doing it in a in a a 20 mile or whatever your longest runs are, uh, run, which are just a bit slow of a marathon pace. So maybe it's 20 to 30 seconds per mile slow of a marathon pace. And that's going to really give you a really, as well as giving you a really good training stimulus and close to close to a marathon, it's also going to give you a good idea of actually how uh, how much carbohydrate can you take on at marathon intensity. Now, hopefully you're going to, you've got a few of these runs planned over the course of your marathon build-up. Uh, and to start with, I'll be really conservative, especially if you haven't taken on carbohydrates before. And I would really plan it out. I would have say that you, um, you are going to take on gels, and you're going to take a gel every... You've worked out um, that... Uh, sorry, i start that again. You say you're going to take uh, gels... Uh, let's start with taking on just forty grams an hour of carbohydrates. Okay, so if we take one of these uh, fancy new gels like the SIS Beta Fuel or Morton, I'm not sponsored by either. By the way, I tend to use the SIS Beta just out of preference. Uh, I think it tastes a bit better than the Morton gels, but um, I uh, find a gel that's got a uh, a a carbohydrate multidextrin Um, the fructose multidextrin or glucose fructose uh mix and we're going to start off with just taking 40 grams an hour so that's one gel every hour now hopefully that should be very tolerable for you um but what i would do is i would take on be really strict take that on every hour of your of your long run and record your your symptoms like one out of ten how much discomfort were you in were you experiencing reflux nausea vomiting i if you're if you could uh if there were some symptoms that's fine just note them down oh, oh okay it was 5 out of 10 but i think the, the key is if you can still do the session then that's great i that's, means that means but you're if you're having some symptoms it's probably a good uh feedback to you that you are stressing the gut by taking on that amount of carbohydrate. And that means that you're probably gonna have a bit of a training stimulus there, and actually you're gonna upregulate the amount of uh, carbohydrate transported you've got in the gut. And the next time, hopefully, it'll be more tolerable. So in that example, we've done our 20 mile long run. We've taken on 40 grams an hour. You've had no uh, negative symptoms. Great, right, next time, let's try 60 grams an hour. Uh, Same thing. Right. Let's record our symptoms. Okay. Now we're having some negative symptoms, but actually it's only a three out of ten. Okay. You still could do the run fine. You just had a bit of reflux in the final half an hour. Okay. Right. That's that's fine. All right. A bit of reflux is okay. You still managed to do the do the long run. Let's try uh, eighty grams next time. Now eighty grams might actually be that you're having severe symptoms and. That uh, you could do the run, but only just because you actually felt quite sick, uh, and it was really affecting your performance. Well, next time, okay, let's 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 uh, let's try the same again and see if that gets any better. If it doesn't get any better, then maybe you want to dial it slightly back, seventy grams an hour, and that's the strategy you're going to use for your marathon race day. But I think the, what you really want is to be really confident in your nutrition strategy when you arrive at the marathon. So I think that's it really for my for my 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 step-by-step guide, my tips of actually marathon fueling. Uh, just to summarize, carbohydrates are king. We want to we wanna burn as much carbohydrate as we can with the caveat that we don't run out before the finish line. We want to aim for about 90 grams an hour. But actually, uh you need to, you're gonna have to find out what works best for you um in person. Um Choosing the right fuel sources is, is going to really set you up nicely. So find something, whether it be gels or drinks that have got a mix of two different types of carbohydrate, most commonly glucose and fructose or multidextrin and fructose. And practice it in training and really go through that really careful graded approach. Really be uh, work out actually how much you're going to take on um, during your training run the night before. So if you're using gels then know how frequently you need to take those gels. Is it every thirty minutes? Is it every twenty-five minutes? And be really strict at taking them on during your run. If you're using drinks, if you've got if you're lucky enough to have your own drinks, then I will measure it out the night before. I will go. Okay, I need to take on two hundred mil every twenty-five minutes, or uh, to get to to get ninety grams an hour, or uh, you know, and and I'll be really strict with measuring actually. How much should I drink and how much should I take on? And it becomes a little bit more difficult with the planning for drinks because you need to, you need to, you don't want to carry those drinks with you. You might, I, I will just do a loop back to my house every five k, or I'll park my car up with, uh, with, with lots of bottles put on my roof, and I will just keep doing a loop back to the car, and I will pick that bottle up, uh, drink, all of it, and then go off to another loop, come back. And I'll make sure if I haven't drunk all of the bottles, I'll record how much I've I've not drunk, so that I can I can uh, how much is left in the bottle, so I can work out how much carbohydrate have, have I actually taken on um, during the run. So that's for the summary there. Um, I'm going to put a few references in the show notes um, for key papers. Uh, I haven't referenced any really during this podcast, but I'm going to put. Some of, the, some of this research that I've done, um, just preparing this, I'll, I'll, I'll post links to them in the show notes. But I also said I was going to direct you to experts in the field, and I've got two experts for you today. Um, the first is Louise Burke. Um, you can find her on Twitter, uh, but I'll also link to it again in the show notes. Now she's uh, an, a, a nutritionist who used to work with the Australian Institute for Sport. Uh, but now, but is also a researcher and has done some of the, the cutting edge research in the field. She's done a lot of specifically with endurance athletes um, and has done a lot of the work uh, looking at actually how can we improve um, uh, nutrition uptake, but also how can we periodize our, our nutrition over the course of a training block. So she's someone really worth following. Uh, and the second is Trent Stenningworth, who is a Canadian. Uh, very similarly works at the Canadian Institute for sport but also uh, does some fantastic research himself um, again available find you can find him on Twitter uh, and he's he's produced some great stuff um, and he's, he's really uh, produced and shares some really in, in interesting stuff on Twitter too so I definitely recommend following him uh, so that's it for this episode uh, I hope you enjoyed Uh Feedback is always really appreciative. This is my first ever podcast, so I'm sure that I've got plenty of stuff to work on. Um, follow me on Twitter if you don't already. That's where I'll be publicizing stuff, and I, I try and share interesting things. If you're interested in my own training, um, I'm currently preparing for the European 50km championships in October, which are going to be in Spain. Uh, you can see all my training on Strava. Um, that's where i'd probably follow me i'm on instagram but i'm not that interesting and don't take great photos so yeah i hope everyone has a fantastic week of training and i'll try and get another uh, podcast out soon do if you've got something you'd really like to to learn more about and also send that over to me and I'll, i'll put it into my my list of potential topics so yeah have a great week everybody bye i hope you've enjoyed